I was nine and I was hungry, which is how most stories start for me. But what I did was I grabbed a brand new package of Doritos, took them to the living room, turned on the TV, opened them up and was ready for some fun. But here's the thing is that not only was I nine, was I hungry and with a package of Doritos, but I was also feeling a little bit lazy. And so what happened was is that I didn't really want to eat the Doritos, but I still wanted to enjoy their cheesy flavor. So what I did was I opened this brand new package of Doritos. I pulled out a Dorito and I just licked all the cheese off. And then I put it back in the bag because I had turned the Dorito into a Tostito. So I took it and then I put it back and then I grabbed another one and I took it back. And I was watching something, so I was very into it. So I was just kind of doing that and I put them back. Well, what I realized is after a little bit of time, I had actually gone through the entire bag of Doritos, which I had turned into saliva, moist, wet Tostitos. So then I was done with them. So I'm figuring, what am I going to do with this bag? So I just folded it back up, put it back in the cupboard and I was ready to go. I was done. Well, I had really forgotten about it until I heard the screaming. And that's when my mom decided that she was going to have a Dorito. She, not realizing, opened the bag and bit into one of these saliva, moist Doritos. And then she showed up with the bag of Doritos in one hand as she was yelling at me, telling me that she almost threw up when she ate one. So she had the bag of Doritos in one hand with the chip and then a belt in the other. And that's when things got ugly. Now, to get, bring the whole thing full circle, this past Friday, uh, I was at the mall. Friday's my day off. And so I was at the mall with my wife and my daughter, and we were just sitting on a bench watching the, uh, watching the Easter Bunny take pictures. And this was like the creepiest looking Easter Bunny ever. I mean, this, is, this Easter Bunny was like, I don't know, out of like the Nightmare Before Christmas or something. It was like the weirdest, creepiest. And then he was like waving to me. And I'm like, I know that there's like a four and a half foot woman inside of that bunny suit, but I am terrified of her in that suit. Anyway, so we're there and so we're, we're sitting there and we, uh, we had picked up an Auntie Anne's pretzel just because, I mean, how could you not? And so I go to get the big lemonade and then we got the, the one that has all the sugar, like the different types of sugar and cinnamon and whatever. It's so good. I mean, when you get to heaven, that's what they're going to be serving as hors d'oeuvres is these pretzels. So anyway, I get one and then I'm kind of breaking off pieces and my wife has some and I give a piece to my daughter and I give her kind of like a big piece. So she starts she starts eating it and I'm just still mesmerized by this creepy Easter bunny that is like now, you know, waving at us. And I'm just like, I wish I owned a gun. You know, I mean, it's just so I just feel safer. So anyway, but I'm still watching this and and then my daughter hands me back the uh, a piece of of the pretzel so I'm like oh she doesn't want it and I'm still watching this and I grab it and I go to eat it and she has licked all of the cinnamon and sugar off and it's like this wet moist pretzel doughish nastiness and I was disgusted I threw it out I started go I was just it was crazy and then I thought to myself and somewhere my mom is laughing you see, there's some things that just make you want to puke. There's something that you see, something that you smell, something that you eat, and, and whatever the case might be. But could you ever think about this? Could you, could you imagine a church wanting to make you puke? And yet, do you know that the text that we're going to look at this morning, that's exactly what Jesus is going to say? 
He's going to look at a church that is so uncaring, unloving, uninviting, uninspiring, and uninvolved that it's actually going to make him sick. And I don't know about you, but I'm a person who likes to avoid vomit at all costs. I, I, I really do. I'm, I'm not like one of the... There's, there's basically two types of people in the world. People who say, I'm going to throw up and then feel better. And then people like me who say, I will do anything that it takes to not make that happen. I'll get the sweats, shivers, hot, cold, whatever, but I will do anything. I haven't vomited in six years and I'm praying to keep the streak alive. But here's the thing. When we, when you have that urge to regurge at times, alright, you say, man, I'm glad I got up for this. It's going somewhere. Uh, here's what we say. We all have the same thing. I don't, nobody ever taught us this, but here's what we say. Man, that just didn't agree with me. And here's the thing, it's like somehow there was some disagreement between our stomach and what went in, and the very same thing is true with what's happening at this church and the person of Jesus. This church and Jesus did not agree, and that's what we're going to spend some time talking about this morning. Now we're in a series that's called, it's the end of the world as we know it. And we've been working our way verse by verse through the book of Revelation, and we've been looking at currently the seven letters written to the seven churches in Revelation chapter 2 and 3. Well, today we're actually going to look at the last of these seven churches. The church called Laodicea. Now, let me give you a little bit of background so you understand kind of what was happening in this day. Laodicea, in many ways, was, uh, Laodicea was the banking center of this region of the world. And in many ways, it was kind of like the Las Vegas of its day. It was a party town. I mean, it was uh, even... Uh, it was kind of in the middle of nowhere, much like Vegas is. It was kind of the place that you would stop at on your way somewhere else. And so you're kind of headed to, towards uh, Laodicea. The, the, this city didn't really have any defenses, and so they were constantly being conquered. And what was happening was, is that for them to continue living the plush life that they were living, they'd have to make these compromises and never stand up for what was right, because that would involve them just getting leveled. So they would compromise with whoever the invading army was, that would keep them living the way that they were living. And it's these compromises that made Jesus sick. And the thing is this, is that we can do the very same thing. We can begin to make compromises in our lives as Christians. And what happens is we start becoming ineffective in our relationship with God. We start becoming ineffective in the mission that God has put us on. And that's why it's so important in our lives from time to time to test ourselves. To put the spiritual thermometer in our mouth to see what the, where the heat is, where we are, how, how it's going. In fact, in your notes, you'll see uh, in, in 2 Corinthians chapter 13, Paul writes this. He says, examine yourselves to see if your faith is genuine. Test yourselves. Surely you know that Jesus Christ is among you. If not, you have failed the test of genuine faith. But what's amazing to me is that Jesus isn't going to give this church the test that they're going to fail, and then He's just going to leave it at that. Instead, He's going to give this church the test, but then He's going to give them the answers to the test if they want to turn it around and ace it. So if you have your Bible, you can open with me to Revelation chapter 3. We're going to start in verse 13. Or pardon me, verse 14. Here's what it says. It says, And to the angel of the church of the Laodiceans write, These things says the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of the creation of God. Now, if you pause there and give me your attention, I, I want to focus on this for just a moment, if I can. We says to the church of the Laodiceans, which is a little bit different. Now, 
There's four tests that we're going to look at this morning throughout this letter that he gives to this church. The first is this, if you're taking note, it's what we call the management test. The management test. Are you or Jesus in charge? Now, let me ask you this. And some of you will know what this is. Some of you will not. But if you do, please answer. How many of you um, like Caldo Gallego? You know what it is and you've had it and you would say, I like it. Okay, these are all the people that have problems uh, in our church. Um, now, I have had this. This is probably the most disgusting food ever. Uh, if they are serving Auntie Anne's pretzels in heaven, they'll be serving caldo gallego in another place. All right. And so anyway, this stuff is just disgusting. And so uh, I would have to eat this stuff as a kid. I mean, it was just gross. And so and I don't know. Did you ever have this? Can I just ask this, especially if you grew up in a Latin home? Um, did you ever have this conversation that your parents would tell you that you had to eat all different types of food because someday there's going to be a food shortage? You ever have that conversation? There's going to be a food shortage and it's only the people who have learned to eat all types of food that will survive. And my thought was this, like, how if, if there is a food shortage, how is the only food available going to be caldo gallego? If, there, if that is the only food available, listen, we've got bigger problems than the food shortage. But anyway, so... I would get home from school and whenever we had soup, like almost every night growing up. And so what would happen is my mom would make different types of soups. But when, I, when she would make caldo gallego, she would be sure to tell me right when I walked in the door. And that's because she doesn't really like kids. And um, so she would tell me right when I walked in, she would say, hey, caldo gallego tonight. And it would just begin the torment. And so what would happen is, is that we'd get to, it would be dinner time. Now, you got to understand how things worked at my house. There, there was the bowl that they'd serve the, the soup in, but our bowls had like this little decorative line about maybe two or three inches up. And so my mom would fill up the soup to the line. Now, here was the rule. The rule was is that if you didn't finish the soup in 30 minutes, it got filled back up to the line. Now, my, question, my thing is, if you don't like kids, don't have them. Anyway, so anyway, so that's what... So that's what she would do. So you can imagine uh, every time this was like this battle between her and I as to what was going to take place. And so uh, one night where, uh, where they're having it and after like two hours of this the thing goes down, she gets filled back up, goes down, gets filled back up. Um, I just decided after two hours, I said, you know what? I am not eating this soup ever again. And that's the end of it. Well, my mom responds and says, Robert, if you don't eat this food. I'm going to dump the soup over your head. And I said, Mom, I'm going to spare you the trouble. Bam! And I jumped it over my head. Now, pause. Up until that moment, I was 12 at the time, that was the greatest moment of my life. That was the ultimate stick-it-to-the-man moment I had ever had. Now, and because I told her that I wasn't ever eating soup again, I had dumped the soup over my head that lukewarm nastiness. I mean, there was like collard green still stuck in my hair, you know, because and then like the ham bone was probably because, you know, that's like anyway that I thought the, 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 the balance of power has now shifted to me. Then the belt showed up and the balance of power shifted again in a way I had never thought possible. And here's the thing. And here's the thing that happens is that everybody is struggling like this through life. Most, we're struggling like this, that we're trying to figure out who is really in charge. And the thing is, especially if you're a Christian, there's this exchange that's happening that we want Jesus to be in charge, but when Jesus doesn't start doing things the way we want Him to do it, we take charge. 
And then if things start going well, we let Jesus be in charge. And then if things start not going well, then, then we take charge. And then things start going well, we're, you know, singing Carrie Underwood. We're saying, Jesus, you take the wheel. And then we take it back. We take the wheel. We're saying, Jesus, hop in the trunk. And then, you know, that's a new song we're going to sing. And then we're going to take the wheel. And we just kind of keep going back and forth. But here's the thing. If you become a Christian, if you are a Christian, then here's what we, we call Jesus Lord. Now think about that term, what the Lord means. When we say we call Jesus Lord, that means master. That means ruler. That means you're totally in charge. That means you are the manager. If you're a Lord, you're master, and that means that we're the servant. And yet, how is it that at times, here's what we do. We call Jesus Lord, but then we say, well, you're Lord, but now I don't want you to do that. I mean, it just doesn't really make any sense. I mean, it's, it's like a total oxymoron to say, no, Lord. In fact, this is what the Gospel of Matthew says. He, he says this, um, it says, from that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem, suffer many things from the elders, the chief priests and scribes, and be killed and be raised the third day. But Peter took him aside. Now, that is just a great phrase. Jesus is saying, this is why I've come into the world. I'm going to die for the sins of humanity. I'm going to be raised on the third day. And then Jesus takes him aside. Now, here's what he says. Far be it from you, Lord. That this should ever, that this should not, this shall not happen to you. Like he takes him aside and says, listen, bad, this is bad publicity here. Let's go do something different. And then Jesus, this is what Jesus' response. Um, <laughs> but he turned and said to Peter, get behind me, Satan. That's a good conversation, Ender. Um, you are an offense to me for you're not mindful of the things of God, but the things of men. You see, it just doesn't make sense that we call Jesus Lord, Jesus says what he's going to do, and then we take him aside. We've all done that at times where God's doing something in our lives, and here's what we want to do. We want to take him aside and say, you know, Jesus, let's, let's fix this. This is not going the way I had planned, so if you could just do it the way I had planned, that would be great. And that's what the management test is all about, where we say that, we, that Jesus is in charge as long as he does whatever it is that we want him to do. And that was the problem in this church. In fact, uh, in Luke chapter 6, Jesus would say these words, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and, do not, and not do the things which I say? This church was struggling with this issue. That's why Jesus addresses this church in a very unique way of all the seven churches. In every other church, he says, to the angel of the church in Ephesus, to the angel of the church in Smyrna, uh, Pergamos, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia. But then when he gets to this church, he says, to the angel of the church of the Laodiceans. Because here's what was happening. It's not that it was the church in this town. It was not Jesus' church in their town. This was their church. This is the church where Jesus is on the outside, and we're going to see that in a very picturesque form at the end of the letter, where Jesus is on the outside knocking, saying, hey, is it okay if I come in? Because I don't know about you, but I drive past a church, and it says, you know, welcome to the church without Jesus. I'm just going to encourage you to just keep on driving, because that's not the church you want to go to. This was this church at Laodicea. It was church without Jesus, because Jesus is looking on, saying, hey, that's a nice church. I wish I could join, but I'm not invited. You know, so, and, and what takes place is, that's the, that was the story of this church. In fact, if you're taking notes, the name Laodicea means this. It comes from two Greek words that means the people judge. The people judge. See, they were the final authority in the church. Not God, not Jesus, not the Spirit of God, not the Bible. They were the final authority. And see, can I just be honest with you that when we decide that, and we decide that we're going to be the ones 
who go our own way, that we take the wheel, we're doing the same thing. It's becoming my life, not the life that I've surrendered to God. You see, and as you think about it and you say, well, how am I doing relationships? I mean, am I doing relationships God's way or my way? But the way I handle my money is am I handling it God's way or my way? The way I use my tongue, my words, is it is it God's way? Am I using the words that God wants me to speak or is it my words? You see, all of that now, I, I start realizing that, you see, I can't serve two masters. N- none of us can. I can't have and say Jesus is my Lord and then start taking the wheel and saying, no, 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 really, in essence, I'm the one that's really in charge. Jesus would put it this way. He would say, you can't worship two gods at once. Loving one God, you'll end up hating the other. Adoration of one feeds contempt for the other. So the question is, how do you pass this test? How do you pass this management test? And here's what Jesus would say. Jesus would say, here's what we need to do is remember that God is God and we're not. And so the person who lives like that, recognizing that God is the one who's the master and we're the servant, and we humbly submit ourselves to him, knowing that God's desire is better than our desire for ourselves, then listen, we pass this test and live the kind of life that God wants us to live and experience the kind of blessing that God wants to bless us with. But things just get, that's just the opener. Things get worse for this church. Look at verse 15. He says, I know your works, that you are neither cold nor hot. I wish you were cold or hot. So then, because you are lukewarm and neither cold nor hot, I will vomit you out of my mouth. And if you pause there and give me your attention, if the first test was the passion test, then test number two, or first number two was the management test, test number two is the passion test. That is, are you cold or are you hot? Now, let me ask a question here if I can. How many of you like tea? Can I ask that? You like tea? Now, how many of you like, like iced tea? Cold ice tea. How many of you like hot tea? Like you're, that, that's your kind of, okay. How many of you say, you know what I like to do is get hot tea, but leave it out for four or five hours and then drink it? Yeah, nobody. Okay. You say, that's because you're, you all are very normal. Um, see, the same thing would be true. Like, I'm guessing a lot of fans of hot chocolate, a lot of fans of like chocolate milk, but not a lot of fans of people who would say, I like to eat, get a hot chocolate, but then leave it out for three hours and then drink it because it's so tasty that way. Lots of people like hot coffee, lots of people like iced coffee, but nobody likes four or five hour, leave it on the counter until I get to it coffee. Because there's something just nasty about lukewarm. And that's the very same thing that Jesus says as well. The problem with Laodicea as a city, the problem with Laodicea as a church was that they were lukewarm. In fact, let me show you this map. Um, You'll see it on both screens. You'll see this is a uh, this is Asia Minor. Uh, today it's modern day Turkey, and it's kind of it's not all of modern day Turkey, but it's zoomed in a little bit. And you'll see the stars here that represent the different churches: uh, Ephesus, uh, Sardis, or pardon me, Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamos, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and then Laodicea. But I want to draw your attention right here for a moment. You'll see there's a city right here called Hierapolis. You'll see it over here on this one. It's called Hierapolis. Then down here, there's a city called Colossae. Jesus wrote a letter to them, or Paul wrote a letter to them called Colossians. But in between these two cities is the city of Laodicea. Now, if you've got good 2020 vision, you'll see that there's this river, right? There's a stream that starts up in Hierapolis. 
It cuts through Laodicea and comes all the way down to the area of Colossae. Now, let me tell you the story of that stream, because the story of that stream is the story of this church in Laodicea, the story of this city. Hierapolis, this area of Hierapolis, was known for its hot springs. In fact, this was, Hierapolis was a popular vacation spot because of its hot springs. So even in the winter, when it was cold, you could go to Hierapolis and you could just go into these hot springs. Have you ever been in a hot, hot you got into a hot spring? Isn't that an awesome thing? Hot springs are amazing. They're like hotter than like a, um, like a jacuzzi and you're like sitting inside of a rock, which I don't know, this is pretty cool. Um, and so, but nonetheless, they were known for their hot springs and the stream starts up there. And if they're very hot. Now, this stream goes all the way down to Colossae. By the time it gets to Colossae, here's what you find. The water is ice cold. Now, think about this. Think about a, not a Miami summer. Oh, that's nothing. Think about a Middle Eastern summer where it's, you're in the desert and it is hot. And you are traveling and you stop at the city of Colossae. And even in the hottest summer day, you take a cup and you put it in the stream and you get ice cold water. Man, that is refreshing. So whether it's the winter and you're going to Hierapolis and the streams are warm or the streams are hot, you go, you go down here to Colossae on a hot summer day and it's still, it's still nice and cold. But then you get halfway in Laodicea and you know what you find there, the water there is lukewarm. Because, you know, everybody likes to drink lukewarm water because it's so tasty and refreshing. No, it's disgusting and it makes you want to puke. And that was exactly the problem of this church. You see, Jesus says, you know, the problem is you're not cold or hot. He says, I wish that you were cold or hot. The word hot in the Greek language is the word zestos, where we get our word zesty. If you... Uh, use the soap zest. That's not, that's not where it comes from, but I just figured uh, say that. Um, but, but here's the thing is that you, 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 he says, listen, I wish you were zesty. This week I, I went with a friend to have some, some Mexican food and, uh, I tried this, uh, this hot, I'm not like a fan of hot sauce. So I tried this hot sauce called the predator. And seriously, I would have rather have been chased by the predator in the movie than what I experienced. It says on the back of it, I actually took a picture of the bottle because it says, listen, this is, this is, it has a warning to only use one drop at a time because it could kill you. So of course I put like five or six drops and then I took a bite and I felt like someone had hit my tongue with a hammer. Uh, seriously, I have, I have fallen down and hurt. I've never broken a bone, but I've hurt myself and I've never felt pain like after eating that chip with that zesty hot sauce. Now, what Jesus is saying is, I really wish that you were zesty, that you were hot, that you were on fire for things, the things of God. But if that wasn't an option, I would rather that you would be ice cold. Cold as ice. Willing to sacrifice. It's a foreigner song. Uh, <laughs> for the eight of us that actually remember foreigner. Um, by the way, the singer foreigner is a Christian now. Anyway. That's a that's another story entirely. Hey, big foreigner fan over there. All right, I want to know what love is. All right, so uh, hot blooded. Okay, I'm 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 digressing. Now here's what happens. <laughs> I'm making myself laugh. All right, um, but he says if hot is not available, I would rather that you be cold. 
because listen, a person who is totally cold to the things of God, at least they're in a place where they can hear the gospel, respond, and then turn things around, repent, and see God begin to work in their life. But the alternative of having them be lukewarm, I mean, lukewarm has got to be the absolute worst place to be. The place where you know enough about the gospel to kind of hear it and say, oh yeah, I know that stuff. But not enough of an experience with God where God begins to really change your life and do a work in your life. And it's this weird kind of place where you know enough to kind of get you into trouble, but you, know, you don't know enough to see God begin to change and, and, and work in your life. And he says, listen, I would rather you be hot or, or you be cold, but this lukewarm thing is making me want to puke. You see, the lukewarm person, what, what, is the, what does that look like? The lukewarm person, they, they look at this Easter invite that they got in their program and they're like, uh, maybe I might go, but I mean, I'm not going invite, to invite your peeps. I'm not going to invite anybody. That just seems like it's too much hassle. I'd have to walk across the street to my neighbor. I'd have to engage them in conversation. Oh, good Lord, how long could that possibly take? And so you kind of have this whole thing. I mean, you know, because it doesn't really matter that much to them. You know, the lukewarm person doesn't really obey Jesus in the Scriptures because, once again, they're still struggling with that whole management test. And it's, it's I'm in charge, you're in charge, ah, maybe I'm, I'm in charge most of the time. They don't actually get committed and go into the waters of baptism and, and say, you know what, I'm going to really commit myself wholeheartedly to God because they don't really think that that matters that much. You see, it's kind of like when you get, an, you get inoculated. You've got enough of the virus to, to, to have it and... and, and have it in you, but not enough to where it actually works in you and, and something really takes place and happens. You see, the Apostle Paul would write it this way in Second Timothy chapter 3. He would say that they have a form of godliness, but denying the power. And here's what I know, is that nobody wants to live in this lukewarm kind of way. Nobody wants to actually live in Laodicea. Instead, but you know, so the question that comes up is, how does a person who's lukewarm actually get fired up and get hot? And that's what Jesus talks about next. He says some hard words, but he gives them the antidote to this. Look at verse 17. He says, because you say, I am rich, have become wealthy and have need of nothing and do not know that you're wretched, miserable, poor, blind and naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined in the fire that you may be rich and white garments that you may be clothed that the shame of your nakedness may not be revealed and anoint your eyes with eye salve that you may see. As many as I love, I rebuke and chasten. Therefore, be zealous and repent. Now, if you pause there and give me your attention, if there's the management test and there's the passion test, then the third one is this. There's the correction test. The correction test is, can I admit when I'm wrong? Uh, in 1995, which feels like a million years ago, uh, I was in a band and, and we were just starting this tour, but uh, we were playing in this big Christian festival. Uh, There's probably like 25,000 kids that were going to be at this festival. And I didn't want to go up when the rest of the band was going. They were going up when the festival was starting. And I wanted to go up a couple of days later just before we played. And so I asked them to give me directions to, uh, to how to get there. Now, mind you, we were coming from Miami uh, or from South Florida. And we were driving up to kind of the middle of nowhere in Illinois in this basically this big giant field where all these kids were going to show up for the course of a week. And so they give me the directions. One of the guys in the vans writes down, writes down and gives me the directions. And um, so I just kind of flip through them and I start out. Now, I'm driving the night shift. There's four of us. 
my wife was with me. We were dating at the time, and her sister was there, and then a good friend of ours who's now a missionary, he was with us too. So the four of us, we're driving, and uh, they're, I think most of them are asleep, and I'm looking at this, at these directions, and I'm getting close. I know I need to make a turn because he said something about St. Louis, and so I'm getting up to St. Louis, Missouri, and I'm like, I've got to do something here. So I pull out the directions, I look at them, and here are the directions. The directions say, when you get to St. Louis, stop and ask for directions. And I'm like, that's not, you can't, the directions aren't stop and ask for directions. That's like going to a restaurant and you open up the food and it says, please cook it. You know, that's not takeout, that's called groceries. You know, so anyway, I stop. I'm so upset because I had been to St. Louis before and I had vowed never to return to St. Louis. You say, well, why is that? Because in the one time that I was in St. Louis, I was almost hit by a car. I was almost mugged. I was propositioned by a woman of the night. And I almost, and I almost puked because of bad KFC, and I was only there for one day. And I thought, if that happened to me in the course of one day, imagine what would happen if I spent a weekend here. I would be dead. So I said, you know what? I am done with St. Louis. Appreciate you, but I will never see you again. And so, I had to, I had to break my rule. And so, and my, which I had only, instituted a few months before, thinking I'm never going to have to go through this. And so I had to stop and ask for directions. I get there like 12 hours later than I'm supposed to. They start looking for like a replacement guitar player, thinking this guy's never going to show up. And so I get there and I'm like, how can you give a guy directions that the directions are stop and get directions? And they don't think it's a big deal. They're like, well, didn't you stop and ask for directions? I'm like, yes, but that's irrelevant. The thing is, is that I was going, it was either St. Louis or East St. Louis. And I'm like, well, which way am I supposed to go? Because in the directions it said, uh, oh, I forgot to mention this part. In the directions it said, uh, you've got to stop and get directions, but it says it's either St. Louis or East St. Louis, or East St. Louis. I can't remember. And it's like two different directions. It's like saying it's either Rhode Island or Arizona. I'm not really sure which. You know, and so I stop. I go St. Louis. It's actually East St. Louis that I had to go through. Anyway, it was a mess. They refused to own up to the fact that they sent me in the wrong direction. You want to know why the band broke up? It wasn't because of Yoko. It was because of stuff like this. All right? So here, so here, I didn't say any of this in the first service. Um, but here's what happens. Now, why do I tell you this? Because Jesus is confronting this church to repent. Repent of what? That they were going in the wrong direction. In fact, what he says is, I want you to be zealous and repent. Now, that term zealous in the original language, the root word is that same word, zestos, that we get that word hot from in, in, the, in the original language. So what he's saying is, get hot and repent. So the idea is, is that how does a lukewarm person get hot? The answer is repentance. Now, now here's the thing, is that repentance is a term that is very, very misunderstood. And, and here's the reason why, is because, you know, like, you know, once you start talking about repentance, people think like, oh, this is like a hellfire and brimstone preacher. And you turn on TV and you've got these guys talking about repentance and they're usually screaming and they've got the microphone and they're sweating. Why is that? Why are these people always sweating? Haven't they heard of air conditioning? Anyway, um, so you get these, but the thing is that repentance is actually a beautiful word. And, and, and if you, um, you understand it from the original languages, it's so picturesque of what God is seeking to do in our lives. In the Greek language, the word repent is the word metanoia. Remember, the Greeks were ones who were always intellectualizing. Everything was about the mind. Everything was about how you think. And what they would do is, um, so the idea was, in the, in the Greek language, when, they trans, when the Bible translates 
translates that word uh, metanoia into repentance. The idea is to change your mind. So you change your mind and now things begin to change. You, you had you thought a certain way about something, but then God begins to do a work in your life. And now you start thinking differently about that. And that begins to change your life and change your direction. The Hebrew word, which much of the Bible is written in Hebrew, um, the idea of repentance there, the, the, the word there is teshuva in, in Hebrew. And the word teshuva in Hebrew uh, means a, a, a little bit different. And it means this. It means to go to change your direction. It means to go back the way that you came and to get on the right path. So the idea is you're walking down a path and now you finally come to your senses and you say, I'm not going to go on this path. I'm going to go the right way, the way that I know to be correct. And so what he says to them is you've got to change your thinking, change your direction, change your mind, change your heart and get back on God's path. The Apostle Paul would say in the book of Second Corinthians, for godly sorrow produces repentance leading to salvation. Not to be regretted, but the sorrow of the world produces death. See, when a person is walking with God and they sin, because all of us are sinners, all of us fall short of the glory of God, the Bible says. But the thing is this, is that when a person is walking with God and they sin, there is a repentance that leads to this. It leads to now a repentance that produces change in my life. But when I'm lukewarm and I, and I sin and I stumble and I fail and I fall, uh, there's no change because there's a lack of desire to really know and walk with God. And that's why Jesus tells this church that you've got to change your ways. Because you, you, th- this church thought that they were rich, they were wealthy, and that they needed nothing. And Jesus says, let me give you my personal assessment of, of, of you guys as a church. And here's what he says to them. You're not rich, wealthy, and needing nothing. Here, here's what he says. He says, you're wretched, miserable, poor, blind, and naked. Talk about the opposite end of the extreme. And in fact, uh, in the original language, the words are, are the, the, the tones are, are, are a little, uh, I wouldn't say harsher, but the, the, the words are, are much more severe. When he says that you're wretched, the word literally means is that you're suffering. When he says that uh, you're miserable, it means worthy of pity. When he says you're poor, it means you're totally bankrupt. When he says you're blind, it means this. It's a word picture that, that refers to someone who's enveloped by smoke and that they're unable to see clearly because of the smoke that they're enveloped in. And then that they're naked, that they're without the proper clothing. You see, think about what happens when, when man sins, when Adam sins in Genesis chapter 3. The first thing that he notices is his nakedness. There's this shame that overcomes him. And so, and there's this, it's interesting to me that if the assessment of this church is that they're wretched, miserable, poor, blind, and naked, and yet they have this vision of themselves that they're rich, wealthy, and needing nothing, there's something that's taking, taking place here that's a little bit off. There's this recognition that they don't, because they're so lukewarm, they don't even realize that the relationship with God has been severed. Because when Adam recognized the relationship with God was severed, he noticed his nakedness. And this church is unable to see their nakedness. And that's why, now here's the thing that's so important, is that if Jesus didn't care about them, he would have said that and said, this is it. I'm done with this letter. You're wretched, miserable, poor, blind, and naked. And he signs his name and he's done. But that's not what he does. He, in fact, what he does is, is that he cares for them so much, he tells them, I want you to buy gold for me that's refined in the fire. That is, I want you to know what real riches are. And then I want you to buy this, get this, I want to give you this white garment. Now you've got to understand, is that 
uh, the, the, the city of Laodicea were known for black garments that they made, which were very rare at that time. What Jesus says in contrast is, I want to give you this white garment that speaks of uh, the, the fact that you're forgiven, that we're in right relationship one to another. And then I want you to buy this salve for me. This salve that this, the city of Laodicea had a medical school that was known that produced this ointment for the ears and for the eyes that was supposed to cure different maladies that would happen in the ears and in the eyes. And he says, this is a different type of malady that I'm going to cure you of. In fact, it's on your notes, but you want to write this down in the book of Isaiah, chapter 61, verse 10. Here's what it says. It says, I will rejoice greatly in the Lord. My soul shall be joyful in my God, for he has clothed me with the garments of salvation. He's covered me with the robe of righteousness as a bridegroom decks himself with ornaments and as a bride adorns herself with her jewels. The idea is this. The idea is, is that when a person comes to their senses and comes into a right relationship with God, it's like something incredible happens like what happens with a couple on their wedding day you see i've done officiated a lot of weddings in my life and 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 here's what i know is that i've never met a couple that's been miserable on their wedding day i've met a lot of married couples who've been miserable like a few days after the wedding day but i've never met a couple who were miserable on their wedding day because on your wedding day Everybody's at their best. Everybody's got their best garment on. And it's nothing but hope and future and possibility and everything that might happen. And what Jesus is doing is comparing this and saying, here's what can happen. When a person is zealous and repents and gets hot and goes from a lukewarm state to a hot state, it's like the relationship begins just like on a wedding day where there's nothing but hope and future, and possibility, and who knows what God will do because things couldn't possibly get any better than they are right now. And what we might think is this, is that, now why does Jesus point out all of their, he points out all of their faults, right? But he's telling them this, it's not just because he's trying to, you know, rub it in, but instead he's showing them that he's the one that can meet all of their needs. He's not trying to give them a hard time because he doesn't care. Instead, he's giving them a hard time because he does care. That's why he says, as many as I love, I rebuke and I chasten. You see, if you're a parent, you know this, that there's times that you've got to, you've got to teach your kids right from wrong. But I know this, that you probably don't parent other people's kids. You're not walking through the mall or walking through a park and you see kids doing something. And you, say, you know what? Let me go and have a 20 minute conversation with this kid. You know, you don't put other kids in time out that aren't yours. No, you don't do that. Why? You recognize, I'm going to let, I got enough that I'm dealing with. Let me let their parents handle them. And that's the, exactly what happens. The Bible says this, and I, I, I've quoted the whole passage in your notes, but I just want to read you this last part. He says, no discipline is enjoyable while it's happening. It's painful. But afterward, there will be a peaceful harvest of right living for those who are trained in this way. Listen, when God disciplines us, it's because he, is, he loves us so much that He just won't let us just walk away and live in a lukewarm state. Instead, God's discipline comes into our lives so we can get back to the place of where it is that He really wants us to be. Then here's where, we, where He ends it in verse 20. He says, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in to him and dine with him and he with me. To him who overcomes, 
I will grant to sit with me on my throne as I also overcame and sat down with my father on his throne. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Here's the last test. It's the salvation test. And that is, will I open the door for Jesus? Let me tell you a quick story. Um, I was uh, I had to fly to Atlanta this week to do some teaching. And so this was on Wednesday morning. I had to stop at the office because I had forgotten my notes, which is becoming like a new thing for me. But I had forgotten my notes at the office. So I come in um, before I had to leave for my flight. I stop at the office. And when I get to uh, I open the, the office door, when I get to my office, somehow the door has been locked. And then I think, oh, no, because I don't have a key. And I'm thinking, like, what am I going to do? The door is totally locked. And, I, and so I look and I say, do I want to climb over the ceiling tiles and drop in, a la Tom Cruise and Mission Impossible? Um, and I'm like, I don't even want to do that a little bit. And so I think, what am I going to do? The door is totally locked. And then I think, you know what? i got to do the one thing that I can do. And so I back up and I kick the door open. And I, Now, let me just say, I've always wanted to do that. And I'm telling you, I felt like Starsky and Hutch afterwards because I kicked the door in and I did like a cop thing right there. And I mean, I was the only one there. I mean, it was like six in the morning. But anyway, so I go in, I get my notes. And then afterwards, I realize like what I've done, like I've destroyed the whole frame of the door. And then I think like, I got to go. I have a plane to catch in like 45 minutes. So I hop in the car and then um, I called Pastor John. And I'm like, hey, I got to put something on your to do list for today. Um Bring your tools. That's uh, anyway. So thank you. Anyway, so he fixed that for me, which I'm very happy about. But here's the thing. Jesus isn't like that. Jesus doesn't kick down doors. He's such a gentleman that here's what he does. He says, I stand at the door and I knock. And if you want me to come in, I'll come in. And I don't know about you, but that's that's just an amazing picture to me that while he has all the power of heaven and earth, all the power of the universe to be able to kick the door open and make happen what he wants to see happen, what he does is this. He simply knocks and he says, I'm going to stand at the door and knock. And if you want me to come in, if you not want to live in this lukewarm state anymore, then here's what I can do. I can come in and I'll and I'll dine with you, meaning that 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 things will be okay between us. If you're making that decision to go from the, way, the path that you're on to the path that I want you to be. It's an amazing picture. You see, and here's, here's what, I, what I fear can happen. Is that some of us can go from a place of being hot when we start out in our relationship with God, and then we move to a place where we're not totally cold. We haven't totally walked away. We start getting irregular, coming here, and then we're not really reading the Scriptures anymore, and... You know, I mean, we, we say we pray, but I mean, truth be told, there's not really much happening. We're not growing in our relationships with other people who are Christians and seeing them work in us as God's working in all of us and we encourage each other and we just find ourselves being in the place of being lukewarm. And here's what Jesus says this morning. Here's, here's his message to us. Everything that he's been saying has been leading to this. Hey, I just want you to know that I'm standing at the door. And and I'll just knock. And when you're ready, you can open the door and let me in. If you want to get out of the state of being lukewarm. If you're in a place where you're cold, then here's what Jesus would say. I'm I'm just going to go ahead and knock. 
and I'll just do whatever I can, but I'm just going to go ahead and knock. And he's such a perfect gentleman that he doesn't force himself, impose himself on us, but here's what he does. He simply knocks and gives us the opportunity to now open the door and invite him in. And listen, I don't know how it is that you got here this morning, but I can tell you this, that it could be for the very reason of this, what I'm sharing right now, that God is knocking, that Jesus is knocking on the door. And maybe today is the day to invite him in. Let's pray together. God, we want to thank you so much for the fact that you do knock, for the fact that you do You don't force yourself, but instead you invite us to open the door so we can see you work in our lives. God, I pray that for those of us here who maybe want to take that step from being lukewarm to being hot, from being cold to being hot, that God, today would be the day that we would pray, that we would open the door, that you would hear, that you would answer and that you'd begin to work in our lives. Listen, with every head bowed and every eye closed, and as we're praying together, if you're here this morning and you're saying, listen, I'm hearing this message and this was just for me. I can't believe that I'm in this place hearing this message because this is exactly where I am right now. Can I just tell you that this is God who's speaking now? And God brought you here to hear this message so that you would respond, so that you'd pray and open your heart and invite Him in. And what I want to do is lead you in a prayer. Now, it's not a magic formula. It really has nothing to do with the words, but it has everything to do with your heart and your desire to open the door and allow Jesus to come in. If you're cold, if you're lukewarm, I'm going to invite you to pray this prayer with me and pray it out loud so God can hear you. And show, you can show how serious you really are. If you're ready, out loud, just say, Dear God, I open my heart and I invite you in. I thank you for Jesus who died for me that I might have life. God, I don't want to be cold. I don't want to be lukewarm. Help me to be hot and care about what you care about. In Jesus' name, amen.